Welcome to episode 330 of Live Happy Now. Anxiety is at an all-time high these days, but today's guest says that might not be such a bad thing. I'm your host, Paula Phelps, and this week I'm happy to be joined by Dr. Wendy Suzuki, Professor of Neuroscience and Psychology in the Center for Neuroscience at New York University. Her new book, Good Anxiety, Harnessing the Power of the Most Misunderstood Emotion, looks at anxiety in a whole new way and explains how we can use the gift of anxiety to improve our focus, productivity, communication skills, and so much more. Let's find out how. Wendy, welcome back to Live Happy Now. Thank you so much. It's great to be back. This is such an important topic because we talk yeah. about anxiety all the time, but not like you're talking about it. So I cannot wait to have this conversation. You know, anxiety is something that we just automatically think of as being bad. So to start this, I wanted to find out what made you begin to study it from a completely different perspective. So the original inspiration to study it was really uh, just the observation of all the students that I had and all of the incredibly high levels of anxiety that I saw them go through multiple times during the semester, particularly at at finals. Uh, But it wasn't just the students. It was my faculty colleagues. It was my friends. It was myself. And this was before our COVID adventure. And so I just started thinking about, you know, what, what is it? Why are we having this kind of epidemic of anxiety? What's causing it? Is there another way to look at it? And from the book, I think the first core concept is the realization that evolutionarily anxiety and the underlying stress response is protective for us. It's there to help us protect protect us from outside forces, negative things, fearful things, dangerous things. And that's so far away from how we think about anxiety right now. It is something that we want to get rid of. We won't have anything to do with it. We're, we're ashamed of it. We don't want, you know, we don't want to engage with it. And I thought, well, wait a second. If it's protective, can we get back to some of those benefits that that protection can confer? And that was the kind of original origin of why I I got interested in anxiety. And it's so fascinating because even the subtitle calls it our most misunderstood emotion, which captures your attention immediately because Mm -hmm. we all think we understand anxiety pretty well. And we think of it as an adversary. (laughs) You know, you provide so much insight into the benefits that it has for us. And obviously way more we can talk than we can talk about here. So Can you talk about a few of the things that you found are the benefits that anxiety provides us with? Absolutely. And, you know, I like to start with the real insight that I have writing the book. People have asked me, you know, what is the biggest thing that you learned or the most surprising thing that you learned writing this book? And the most surprising thing is I found myself making friends with my own anxiety, which was very, very different from my instinct. Like everybody else, I just wanted it to go away. And I thought it was kind of inevitable. And I just, oh, trying to grin and bear it. But I realized that when I made friends with my own anxiety, and really unpacking that, it is reflecting, stepping back, and asking, what are these, quote unquote, negative emotions that make up anxiety? What is it telling me? 
What is it telling me about myself, about my world, about what I value, what I don't want in my life? And I realized how informative our own anxiety is if you kind of turn inward and reflect upon it. And that's when the protective aspects, that is when the positive action oriented kinds of lists of things that you can do come forth. And that was the most surprising thing that that I found. It's like, oh, it's there to be my friend. It is helping me. <laughs> well, and most of us look I, at it as a friend we don't want. We're mm-hmm. like, you need to go next door. <laughs> yes. Okay. Prickly friend. Yeah. <laughs> the prickly friend that has insights that you might not want to hear, but it is useful. That kind of friend. So maybe that's helpful. <laughs> Well, now, is that something that you can do when you're in the throes of anxiety or is it something you have to do when, you know, the moment has passed and you can kind of go back and and rework what, what you were going through? That is a fantastic point. A lot of these approaches cannot be used. You can't, you know, just just think about it. Take a moment to reflect when you're in the throes of a really, you know, severe uh, anxiety attack. No, but the book is chock full of tools that you can use in the moment. So for example, my my best two tools that I always give are breath work to kind of quell those those feelings of anxiety. If you're deep in anxiety, that, that will also not work. But when you're just starting to feel it, Breath work is activating that that rest and digest part of your nervous system, that calming part of your nervous system, best way to decrease that or moving your body. I've done a lot of work on the powerful effects of exercise on your brain. It is so powerful moving your body in in terms of just walking, walking, taking a walk outside can start to decrease hostility levels, decrease anxiety, depression levels. And um, those are immediate things that you can use. The toolbox goes on to medium-term and long-term strategies that you can use. You can start these when you're not in the throes of anxiety, when you have a moment to reflect, when you think about, when you can think through and start to reflect upon what these negative emotions are really telling you about yourself. And sometimes it takes a little bit of thought to kind of get through that and learn what you are trying to avoid or get away from, which is at the core of your anxiety. And that can be a challenge because when we're in the moment, when we're in anxiety, we're like, oh, I wish I had learned that breath work. I wish I had paid more attention. And when we're fine, we tend to be like, well, you know, maybe what? I don't really need that. And I guess that's just human nature. So Part of it comes down to this discipline and how do we do this? How do we find it in ourselves to really like dig in, take the time and give this gift to ourselves? Yeah, that is a great question. And the answer to that is the same answer I was giving when I talked about my first book, Healthy Brain, Happy Life. And and how do you get into exercise? How do you start a regular movement, you know, habit in your life? And it's always start small. People try, okay, I'm going to do an hour meditation today. (laughs) And And of course they fail miserably. Start small and kind of my new evolution of this, of this, of these tips are use the tool of YouTube. So there are so many five minute movement sessions, two minute meditations uh, on YouTube. Find the one with 8 million views. Okay. It has to be popular. Try that. It will only take two minutes. And maybe not the first one is the most popular, but there's so many. They're at your fingertips, they're free. Try it. Start small, start short, 
And the other thing to make it, make it a habit is find a friend to do it. Oh yeah. A little accountability partner. And exactly. That's a great idea. Well, you know, you give us some really fun practices in here mm-hmm. that they're so rewarding to explore. And one of the things that I'm just kind of obsessed with is your tea meditation. This is something it's enjoyable. And for anyone who says, I can't meditate, I, it's just too hard. I can't focus this. Like, okay. There's no excuse. <laughs> so, so can you talk us through this tea meditation and how we can do that? I love this. Absolutely. So this is the meditation after years of trying all kinds of things, this meditation, that meditation, breath meditation, uh, a guided meditation. This is the one that has kept me coming back literally every day. I did it this morning. And so what it is, is adding a meditation to the ritual of brewing and drinking tea. And for me, I think of the tea brewing and drinking as this kind of wonderful big stone wheel that just keeps going at its speed. There's always something to do next. It's you boil the water, you pour it in the teapot, you let it seep, you pour it in your cup. And then you have this wonderful moment of being able to mindfully drink this wonderful cup of tea. And then the process starts all over again when you're finished with that cup of tea. That is the process during that process of tea, brewing and drinking, what am I doing? I'm doing basically an open monitoring meditation. I'm trying to appreciate the present moment. I'm feeling how I feel in my body. And I could literally, I've gotten so good. I I can feel my body waking up. I do this first thing in the morning and I feel the moment when, okay, I'm ready for my workout, because that's what I do next. I I go work out. I'm not ready when I first wake up to go and (laughs) fling myself all over the place and and get sweaty. But there is a, a certain moment. It's like, yeah, I'm feeling good right now. And just taking that moment to reflect is what I have been able to build up in myself. And there are videos. If you follow me on Instagram and Facebook, I post videos of some of my tea wear and pouring tea and just little moments of what that ritual is. Actually, all through the pandemic, I hosted a a Sunday morning virtual tea meditation for my friends where we all drank tea and did uh, just a little 10 to 15 minute meditation together, followed by conversation, just fun conversation. But I really have, it's incorporated it. I've incorporated it in my life, in my social life, in my, in my work life. And um, it's just lovely. And what happens to your mind, first of all, as you start focusing on the tea, on this whole process, because it's really not so much about the tea. It's about the process, really. It's about the process. For me, the tea helps. I find, of course, the kind of tea that I love to drink. And uh, it's about savoring the tea and and the practice of savoring the moment. I've put all of my houseplants all around um, the, the location where I do my tea meditation. And here is the very practical thing that happened with this morning tea meditation where these plants are around. My plants used to die because of (laughs) neglect. I never looked at them. Now I look at them every single morning. And if you look at your plants deeply every day, you notice, oh my gosh, I forgot to water. I can see them drooping. 
it was months or weeks that I never saw the drooping plants, which is why they died. But now I have these vibrant plants and I know it's because of my tea meditation and this, this coming into the moment and appreciating nature, appreciating the tea. And it, it's this refreshing, my brain feels refreshed after, after this practice. And then what does that in turn do to your body? What I'm basically doing is for my brain, I'm learning how to focus on the present moment, which is the core of what mindfulness meditation also teaches. I'm decreasing kind of the stress response, the cortisol response that actually naturally we have variations in our cortisol that tend to be highest in the morning. I hate to admit this, but of the two things that I do every morning, exercise and meditation, I miss the meditation more if I miss it, because it's like my brain wasn't prepared in the same way. It doesn't feel as rested. It feels a little bit more on edge. It really grounds me every morning. And I also must say, I take every every opportunity to include meditation in what I do. So for example, the first two minutes of all of my science lab meetings for my lab, uh, everybody knows they come with a cup of water, a cup of coffee, their favorite beverage, and we do a two minute meditation to come into the space, to be ready, to be open to um, the tasks that we want to do that day. So I try and incorporate it in my day at other times as well. That's terrific because that's something every one of us could do, whether we're working from home or working in an office, we could do like even before, if maybe our office isn't open to that, before we go into that meeting, take that two minutes and and have that moment. Exactly. To reset. Exactly. It's so, so helpful and so easy. And you do not have to be a meditation guru to do this. It was, I just invite everybody to do a silent meditation. You know, not everybody is into it, of course, but you make it a habit and everybody knows they have this two minutes to just focus in. So um, I found it very helpful. And as they do those things and they start coming to um, a relationship, a better friendship with their anxiety, how is that going to help us? Especially right now that, you know, our anxiety level has just continued to escalate in the last 18 months and it's not doing well right now with, you know, a new wave of infections, more lockdowns, things coming. How do we start, start managing that and making that prickly friendship work for us in this really difficult time. Right. So I think another kind of mindset approach to anxiety and trying to help you befriend it is the idea that, you know, evolutionarily anxiety and the stress that underlies your anxiety response evolved to protect us and, and uh, to put us into action. So the best way to understand that is imagine 2.5 million years uh, earlier, our major dangers were not taxes and global warming. It was the lion that's going to come come at us. And so we have evolved to be able to respond to that immediate threat by shifting our physiology to make us ready to either fight or run, fight or flight. That is, that is the uh, response. And so the bad part is that in today's world where uh, an Instagram post can cause, you know, (laughs) social anxiety, we still have the same response that increases our heart rate, increases our respiration. All we're doing is sitting there scrolling more to look at other, you know, unrealistic pictures of the world (laughs) that makes us more (laughs) stressed. 
how do you undo that? And I think part of I've realized as I've been talking about this book is so many of my tools from the toolbox are are ways to allow you to shift that anxiety, which is just a kind of brain activation and put that into action. So to try and go back to the original response to run away from the line, we're not running away from the line, but what if you shift your what if list, which is in so much of our anxiety responses, what if this happens when I go back to school or when my kid goes back to school, what if that happens when I go back to the office and turn that into a to-do list. So turn that into strategies that you actively come up with, that you creatively come up with to address the situations that you know very well uh, that could come about in your school situation or your work situation. It is satisfying because it is a a list that you could create and and, uh, prepare for. So I want to have these things in in my back pocket so that I will be prepared in that way. So it's a way to dissipate the anxiety by being active and creative about addressing those what ifs. And it gives us a sense of doing something rather than sitting helplessly by. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. So, you know, one thing that we see a, a term I'm seeing used more and more and you address this and that's languishing. Yeah. And yeah. I mean, I, what's so incredible about your book is I know you wrote it pre-COVID. Yes. But oh, my gosh, it is just it's such <laughs> it is so the book we need right now. And so so as we talk about languishing, first of all, can you explain it? Because it's not anxiety. It's not depression. Can you explain to us what languishing is? Yeah. Languishing is that state. And I think too many of us uh, are familiar with it, where it's not a state of real depression or anxiety, but it's just not, you're just not at your best. You're just kind of floating there in not doing great and not knowing how to shift it. And it comes from too long alone in our homes or together in our homes with our families without enough, you know, activity to help us. And, and so this term, which I think is very, very well, well put has, has come into being, I feel like we need something to shine, shine us up. Uh, It's languishing. It's dull. It's, we are feeling dull and not at our best. And a lot of the tools that I talk about in good anxiety uh, that address specifically anxiety are also so helpful for languishing and uh, particularly those, I think, uh, around creativity. So creativity. Can we talk about that a little bit? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So I think that one of the best lessons that I learned from my friend and fellow TED speaker, Julie Burstein, her talk was about creativity and the idea that so much of the world's most spectacular examples of creativity come from a place of difficulty, pain, anxiety. And that was the inspiration for that creativity that this person happened to happen to develop. And what if we think about anxiety or our languishing? We're just not, you know, not at our shiniest best as an opportunity to 
inspire ourselves to be creative in a new way. I need something new. I need some other creative outlet to supercharge our lives. And, and, you know, all of these new situations, staying at home, what can I do at home that can be just as creative or just as productive, perhaps as when I'm in the office? It's really a wonderful opportunity. And I'm always inspired by, if I go back to Julie's book, Spark, How Creativity Work, describing artists and, and poets that were, in fact, defined by their their dyslexia and and um having to read slowly and and that actually gave them much more inspiration and and a feeling for the rhythm of language they wouldn't have had that if they did not have dyslexia so what kind of creativity do you have you developed because of your particular form of anxiety. And in fact, I can tell you every single person has developed coping mechanisms and strategies that are very creative. They don't think about it that way. They think of it as, you know, I'm just trying to hang on with my fingernails (laughs) to get through. But in fact, you have been very creative. What if I shift your mindset and have have you really appreciate and revel in your beautiful creativity there and jump off from there and get even more creative about how you deal with anxiety or what anxiety has brought to you, has has made, has allowed you to create in a new way in the world. And if people are having trouble defining or recognizing that creativity, because sometimes someone else can see it in us and we can't, how can they go about really discovering this creative side? Yeah, I think one of the big messages of the book is self-reflection about your anxiety is very, very important. That is what will help allow you to make anxiety more of your friend. And that will help you, allow you to start to appreciate the creativity that you have used to address different forms of anxiety. So I would start by listing out the most anxiety-provoking, common situations that you experience. And then start thinking about, well, what have you done to get around it or to get through it? And what has really worked and what, you know, might've made you feel good in the moment, but you didn't continue and, and really embrace that as a form of creativity. So start with your own kinds of creativity, uh, uh, you know, triggers of creativity is what I mean to say. And um, think about what you have done to do that. And, and this brings us to another gift of anxiety that has a creative element. And that is the gift of empathy. I love to share this because this is also something that every single person has. And it actually might be a little bit easier to identify than those, those creative sparks that come from anxiety, even though they're there. Here's how this works. Many of us have the same kind of anxiety that we've had, that we've lived with for all of our lives. And while people don't initially appreciate this about me or they don't notice it because I've, I've, I've developed creative ways to get around it, my form of anxiety that I've had all my life has been a form of social anxiety. I was a very, very, very shy young woman, little girl. And even in college, I was always felt awkwardly social. I was never in the cool group, always wanted to be in, never knew how to do it. I had a hard time raising my hand in class. I knew the answers. I knew that I wanted to participate, but it was scary and I didn't want to be wrong. 
And of course, as a teacher now and as a speaker, I've learned to have get those skills uh, to at least speak up, ask questions. I don't have uh, that same kind of anxiety. But every single time I go in front of my classroom, I realized kind of unconsciously that I remember myself in that classroom. And so unconsciously, I, I'd always find ways to interact with as many of those students, particularly the shy ones that aren't the ones raising their hands, pick me, pick me, pick me, who I love. I love them. Please keep doing that in my classroom. (laughs) But I found myself, you know, arriving to class 15 minutes early, hanging out with the students, making sure there were ample opportunities just to ask me questions casually. I'm there after class. I give office hours as everybody does. But I realized it was because I remember what, how scary it was to ask those questions in class. And I want to give as many students as possible an opportunity to do that. I was turning my own form of anxiety into my own particular form of empathy because I know that anxiety so deeply. And that's something that every single person can do right now. Yeah, that is one of the gifts it brings. And you, this book shows so well that your life can really change if you change your relationship with anxiety. And so what is it that you hope people will, will receive from reading Mm. your book, from doing the exercises and how is it going to enrich their lives? My hope is really encapsulated there that by using the tools of the toolboxes that I give in good anxiety, that people will learn that embracing their anxiety, befriending your anxiety, ultimately will make your life less stressful, more beautiful, more more stress-free. And I think that appreciating the value of those quote-unquote negative emotions learning to see what they are telling us about ourselves, about our values, is something that will help them get through those negative emotions more. My book does not say, I'm going to make your life happy all the time. (laughs) There's no magic wand at the end. There's no magic wand that we're all going to experience these quote unquote negative emotions, but they're there for a reason. And if you appreciate that, it helps you get through those negative emotions better and come out on the other side with more wisdom. And that, that is the promise of the book. That was best-selling author and speaker, Professor Wendy Suzuki, talking about the benefits of anxiety. If you'd like to learn more about Wendy, follow her on social media or order her new book, Good Anxiety, Harnessing the Power of the Most Misunderstood Emotion. Just visit us at livehappynow.com and follow the links. That is all we have time for today. We'll meet you back here again next week for an all-new episode. And until then, this is Paula Phelps reminding you to make every day a happy one.